Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Dominic Peschel, who currently serves as the head of the economics unit as the Asian Development Bank's resident mission in Beijing, where he focuses on macroeconomic surveillance and forecasting. Before moving to Beijing in 2018, Dominic led the ADB's forecasts for Central Asia and the South Caucasus. Earlier in his career, he also spent a number of years at the German Central Bank. Dominic, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for hosting me. So with the end of China's zero COVID policy, there is an ongoing market debate about what China's near-term post-pandemic economic trajectory is going to look like. And I know that you and ADB have contributed to these discussions through the periodic Asian Development Outlook reports that you do. But for the purposes of our conversation today, I was hoping we could sidestep some of these short-term factors and focus on China's long-term economic growth prospects, which is the subject of a very fascinating working paper that you and your colleagues released towards the end of last year. So before we dive into some of the paper's main conclusions, do you think you'd give us a bit of background and the general impetus behind this project? Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, you already mentioned the COVID-19 and the shock on the economy. And for us, it was uh, an interesting question to which level of growth the Chinese economy would return to after the COVID episode and uh, how are the long-run perspectives. So we saw a decline in GDP growth over the past decade or so. And uh, the question is, once this uh, COVID-19 pandemic is behind us, to which level of growth the Chinese economy would return to. And from a practical perspective, you already mentioned we do this forecast that is a short-term forecast one or two years ahead. But of course, it would help us if we have an idea about where potential growth is. And that was one of the motivations behind the paper. No, that's great. I definitely uh, sympathize with this perspective because against the backdrop of the pandemic and then the former zero COVID policy strategy, Many of us that follow China's economy, we've been focusing on extremely short-term trends, such as the mobility indicators and the traffic patterns and whether or not there was going to be another lockdown due to sort of a pandemic outbreak. So I really appreciate you know, this paper because it refocuses our attention on these important big picture structural trends, which I think are ultimately going to drive be the driver of China's long-term growth performance. So maybe to dive in to the, to the paper itself, it'd be useful to start with a bit of a conceptual overview. Uh, could you tell us, for the purpose of the paper, how are you defining long-term or potential growth in China? And what are the key inputs, drivers, uh, or, or theory behind this concept? Sure, Andrew. So first of all, potential growth is a theoretical construct. It's an estimate of potential or it's an estimate of output that an economy would have produced if labor and capital had been employed at their maximum sustainable rates. So this already tells you theoretical construct is something that you can't observe. So basically, you would need to develop an estimate of that. And this estimate would need to be consistent with steady growth and stable inflation, which is part of the concept of potential growth. So one can imagine potential growth as smooth and steady growth without any business cycle influence. And in the literature, there are several approaches to estimating long-term growth. Some of them then call it potential growth or potential growth estimate. And then there are some other approaches that deal with long-term growth in a sense that they look at convergence theory or at long-term trends. 
One approach, for example, is sectoral catch-up processes that look into different industries, how far they are from the international frontier. There are other approaches. They look at how countries in the past have grown, how fast and to which level of growth they had reached at a certain point in their development and to which level of growth they then converged to in the long run. And then there is a production function approach has input factors. So if you look at GDP growth from a supply side in the long term, one can identify as input factor labor, human capital, capital and total factor productivity. The issue is that you would need to have an idea about the development of each input factor and then later to combine them into one function, which then would yield the GDP growth. So we would need to calibrate a production function that fits the growth rates from 2001 to 2019. And then we have a result for that. And in a second step, we would then develop an estimate of the future potential growth. Okay, so maybe just to clarify very briefly, this concept, you are not trying to arrive at a growth forecast for the next one or two years. It's a theoretical concept that is helping you approximate what you think the economy might grow at over a much longer period of time. Correct. This is a concept that can be used for the next one or two decades. One could even try to do a longer time horizon, but of course, the longer it gets and the further out you are, the bigger the impact of a small deviation from the trend. For policymaking purposes, one or two decades are already quite a bit if you have an idea about how growth could evolve. And is that the time horizon that you used in your studies? Well, one to two decades? Yes, this is what we use. We use forecast up 2040. We start with the growth specifying the function from 2001 to 2019. We stopped in 2019 because in 2020, we had the impact of COVID. And in terms of estimating and fitting a function, we didn't want to have the distortions from COVID in the estimate. So therefore, we started in 2020 and then went up to 2040. Okay, that's great. Thanks for that background. And I know you mentioned this already uh, briefly just a few minutes ago, but could you summarize briefly sort of the approach that you and your colleagues at the ADB took in estimating China's long-term growth potential in your study? And and also, what were the results? Yeah, that was the second step that I mentioned. Once we had this production function, we would then estimate the trends of all the input factors. And then with that, we would derive at an estimate of potential growth over the next two decades. And we have for the labor, human capital, capital and total factor productivity. And for each of these, we would get an estimate of their long-term trends. For labor, which basically is proxied by the working age population. It is comparatively simple because uh, you know demographics and the people that are in the labor force over the next 15 years must be born already. So you have a good idea how this looks like, in particular since we have updates with the 2020 census. And then human capital, there's also some estimation work to do where we need to look at the educational attainment and the returns to human capital. We develop an index, and the growth rate of this index is then the contribution of human capital to growth. And then we have capital. Capital is very complex to estimate because of the capital stock. So in the production function, actually, it's not the investment rate that goes into that function, but it's the growth rate of the capital stock. And the capital stock is defined as a starting value plus investment each year minus depreciation. 
So the issue is not only the investment determines the growth of the capital stock, but also the depreciation and the starting value you choose. We had to go through some loops in order to specify that and get a reasonable result because uh, in the literature, there are deviating opinions how you should specify that and also what are the values on the capital stock. There's also a question if you should include the housing or if you should exclude housing. We discussed that in greater detail in the paper for those people being interested in the technical details. And finally, we have total factor productivity. Total factor productivity is productivity growth. And productivity growth, backward looking, is quite easy to determine because it can be estimated as the residual that cannot be explained by the growth in the capital, human capital, and labor. So basically, if you decompose the growth and then you know what the contribution of labor, human capital and capital is, the unexplained part is the growth in total factor productivity. But this trick doesn't work the way looking forward because going forward, you don't have a residual because it is actually the potential growth you want to estimate. And since you don't have the potential growth in the first step because you need to estimate it, you cannot determine the residual. So you would need to develop a proxy, which we then did in the paper. And then with the proxy variables that we use in order to derive at a future total factor productivity, we can then fit a function that yields. But you asked me before about the results, and I, I might want to come back, back to that, uh, if I may. So the potential growth estimates for 2020 to 2025 is estimated as an average of 5.3%, and then it would gradually decline to 2% on average in 2036 to 2040. So there's quite some decline over the two decades. And as for the drivers of growth, we would have capital and total factor productivity as the major contributors to potential growth in the long run. Interesting. So we already talked through some of the key model parameters, which you've discussed a bit in detail. And I certainly encourage everyone to download the full paper and digest all the nuances uh, that have been presented there. But I guess for the purposes of our chat today, I thought we could talk about some of the parameters that are the most impactful. You know, one that certainly dominates a lot of media headlines and discussions about long-term growth in China is, is definitely demographics, and it's very hotly debated, especially after the census, the 2020 census, which you mentioned uh, earlier um, in our conversation. So could you help us understand the influence of China's demographic challenges on your own long-term growth estimates for China? Sure. Thinking about the demographic impact on long-term growth, there are two ways, actually, demographics affect long-term growth. The first one is the obvious channel, that if there's a decline in the workforce because there are fewer people in the working age population bracket, then the contribution of labor will decline. And actually, it has turned negative already in the 2010s, but it's only a, a slight drag on growth while this effect will get much stronger, in particular after 2025. So if you look from, from 2026 to 2040, there is a much bigger drag on growth from the demographics. And this comes mainly from the shrinking working age population. But there's also a second channel, which is a more hidden one. If you think about total factor productivity, and within total factor productivity, we also include sectoral labor shift. So if you think about people migrating from low productivity agriculture into higher productivity services or industry, 
you would also have fewer people to migrate because of the demographics. If there are just fewer people, fewer people can migrate from one sector to another. And this also then leads to lower factor productivity growth because this uh, kind of migration is a part of uh, our estimate of total factor productivity. So, so the boon that China had from people leaving rural area, areas and joining factories, that is already coming to the end. And that was for many decades a driver of growth and productivity. Exactly. Exactly. That's what has happened. If you look at the early 2000s to 2010, there was a significant contribution from the sectoral labor shift. And this has declined already and will most likely decline further in the future. And as you said earlier, that's on top of the fact that the working age population has already peaked. Correct. Well, I guess this is a bit of an introduction to some of these demographic pressures. The second key determinant in the model that you guys have, have, have used in your study is capital deepening and investment. You know, this is another hotly debated part of the Chinese economy. Uh, some observers think that investment rates have been much too high in China for much too long. What is the thinking behind the assumptions that you've used uh, for capital investment trends in China in the coming decades? And how does that impact your long-term growth estimates? Yeah, let me start with the impact on growth. Capital investment has a large impact on long-term growth. We actually think that it will still be the biggest contributor to growth over the coming decades. For investment, this is proxied by gross fixed capital formation. And gross fixed capital formation is uh, measured as a share in GDP. And I already explained earlier that in the model, it's the growth of the capital stock that determines the potential growth. And then we have the depreciation part and then the starting value. But if we look only at the investment, which is, of course, an important part of it, and it's also the part that can be influenced by policies, these uh, gross fixed capital formation should decline gradually. So a gross fixed capital formation was still at 42% of GDP in 2020 and 21, And we expect it to decline by 10 percentage points by the end of this decade and then a little bit further over the next decade. And this then leads to a smaller overall growth because, I mean, if there's less investment, there's also less growth. That's basically how it works. The interesting question is why we assume this kind of decline. And there you already alluded to the debates that are out there. So we have been seeing significant debt accumulation over the past decade. And we think that this is not sustainable to further accumulate a lot of debt over the next decade or even decades. Part of the debt accumulated comes from infrastructure investment. And infrastructure investment is one important part of investment. So if uh, local governments need to curtail their infrastructure investment, then, of course, as it is part of the investment, it also would lead to lower investment as gross fixed capital formation as a share in GDP. And then we have the housing market. In the housing market, we had a terminal last year. So there might be also less investment in the housing market over the next decades, which would make sense from the perspective that demographics is also at a turning point. So if there are fewer people, then there's uh, less need for additional housing. So in that perspective, we would think that this is a second component that leads to less growth. And finally, there's a more subtle argument, which is investment versus consumption. If you think about an economy that can invest or consume, you have a choice. And in a rapidly aging society, 
most likely the consumption should rise a bit because if you think about an aging population, they need uh, more medical services, they need more long-term care, they need more services in general and less highways because, I mean, if people age rapidly and you have a bigger share of, of people that are quite old, they most likely travel less and the highways are already in good shape. So you would reasonably assume that there should be a shift towards services which are less capital intensive per se. So sort of from a, a big picture perspective, you know, the argument is not that investment drops off a cliff and it, it slows sharply, but really that there's a lot of factors at play um, that point you to the conclusion that the direction or the, the pace of investment in the Chinese economy is going to slow over the coming decades. Yes, I mean, the falling off a cliff scenario we don't see because the economy is managed and part of the investment can be managed because infrastructure investment is government investment mostly. The housing market reacts to changes in housing market policies and the trends I described with the transition to a more services-based economy, the transition of an aging society, that is nothing that happens overnight, but this is kind of an ongoing process. So we would think that there is a gradual decline. Of course, there can be a bit more or less, I mean, how it plays out from year to year. This is, of course, uncertain because of developments in the economy. I also talked before about that it's potential growth and we don't take into account the uh, business cycle influence. So you can have a bit more or less investment in a year also depending on business cycle, but we abstract from that. So, and if you take this into account and extract from business cycle influence, then we think it would be a gradual path. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess from year to year, it's it's difficult to predict, but from a, a big picture perspective, the broader trend is you can have a lot more conviction about that. I guess the final parameter that really has a huge impact on the final result, and also the most challenging to quantify, as you mentioned earlier, is total factor productivity growth. So you mentioned and gave a, a very brief synopsis in your introductory remarks, but could you run through one more time for us what is being captured here in this concept, total factor productivity, how it's performed in recent history? Because you said that in recent history, you can capture how fast it's been growing. Sure. So total factor productivity, or TFP in short, is a measure of productive efficiency. So it measures how much output can be produced from a certain amount of input. So if you can't produce with the same amount of inputs more outputs, then your total factor productivity has increased. And backward looking, as I already mentioned, one can estimate that by determining the residual, and this residual then is called total factor productivity, or solo residual, named after Robert Solo, the economist who worked on that in the 1950s and pioneered that work. And I also mentioned that looking forward, we would need to find a proxy variable for that. And we decompose total factor productivity in four components, which is sectoral labor shift, growth in FDI stock, import growth, and growth in research and development expenditure, R&D expenditure. We already talked about it. The decline in the past decade was mostly due to a decline in the sectoral labor shift because there were fewer people migrating from rural areas into the cities. Total factor productivity has declined. Even though it has declined in the future, is still an important contributor to growth. Thanks for that very interesting synthesis. Maybe from here, we should just dive into what your assumptions are for productivity growth in the future and, and what are you using in your baseline and, and maybe what the upside or downside risks there are. 
Yes. So in the future, total factor productivity will be mostly driven by R&D expenditure in our view. And I mentioned that we have these four components. There's growth in FDI stock and import growth that have moderated over time and we would not expect them to pick up. So basically those two components are there and they contribute a bit. And there are two left, which is the R&D expenditure and the returns to R&D and the sectoral labor shift that I talked earlier about. So on demographics, we talked already about it. And so there will be less contribution from this sectoral labor shift because of less people migrating from rural areas. The key component or the key question is how efficient R&D expenditure is. So research and development. Research and development, you can think about innovation, because if you do research uh, and development, you want to invent new products and new products then can uh, lead to or new methods, new materials can lead to higher productivity growth. But by its nature, research and development is uncertain. Because if you do research and development, you don't know what's the outcome before, because otherwise it wouldn't be research and development. Basically, you, you invent something. And how valuable that is in terms of growth, productivity, that is not known. I mean, first, there's a question on how valuable it is for a company. And then since we look at the economy as a whole, there's also a question how valuable this research and development contribution is towards the productivity of the entire economy. So if it's kind of a breakthrough or if it's just a little add-on and nice thing for a specific company. Of course, on research and development and its contribution to productivity growth, you can have an assumption that can wildly deviate. Even if you agree on how the contribution is to the productivity of companies and firms, it's still not clear what the contribution is to whole economy growth, so to speak. Yeah, so it, it just sounds... It sounds notoriously difficult uh, to forecast and 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 really uh, I guess maybe at, a, at at its essence what you probably want to see is economies investing more in R&D and you just have to assume that at some stage some breakthroughs will happen that affect productivity of the whole economy I guess the more you spend the better and from that sense Yes, there's one thing about the quantity and there's also something about the quality and where you invest. I mean, if you do a lot of basic research, then your chances are higher by and large. Because if you do basic research, your chance to hitting something big are bigger than you just tweak around known concepts and do a little bit of product design. And this is also an issue that we talked about in the policy recommendation part, where we come to the conclusion that increased spending in basic research is needed and a better protection of intellectual property rights. Because if you think about it, about the incentives that companies have in order to invest in basic research, they must be sure that they get something out of that. Because basic research, if they just invent something general and they cannot protect it and neighbor countries just take it, then the incentive is not there in order to invest in those areas. So at the moment, there is a tendency that companies tend to invest in products that they have already developed and to improve them gradually, which what I talked about earlier, it's not the best way in order to get to breakthrough inventions. So the question of basic research and how you incentivize companies to do research and the kind of research that might contribute more to productivity growth, that's an interesting 
No, that's fantastic. And I think you've already very naturally pivoted us into the last part of your paper and in our conversation, which is on policy recommendations. And you've already articulated basically some of the key recommendations to enhance productivity. So why don't we pivot now to the other parts of the puzzle that we talked about earlier, which is what can China do or what do you recommend policymakers do with regard to the demographic and labor market challenges that China faces to offset some of these downside growth pressures? Sure. So as I mentioned before, demographic aging is there and it's going to stay. And the impact of demographic aging on the labor force will increase over time. So the adverse impact. So mitigation measures are needed. If you think about demographics in the long term, in the very long term, what you would like to see is, of course, an improvement in demographics, but this would require more children, so higher birth rates. In order to get higher birth rates, you would need to support families and you would need to shift a lot of policy priorities towards families in order to lift the birth rate, which then in the very, very long run can improve your demographics. Don't forget, I mean, we talk about growth until 2040, and I mentioned earlier. So basically, the demographics until 2040 in terms of working age population is more or less known because we know the, amount, the, the people born up to 2021, 22 now. Those people after 15 years enter the bracket of working age population. If you do the arithmetics, you are already in the year 2037, and we forecast until 2040. So these kind of demographics changes or shifts in the birth rate won't affect our forecasting anymore for the period, but it has an effect in the very long run. And I guess the second important point that we can learn from other economies around the world is that policy interventions don't necessarily lead uh, to the results that policymakers are hoping for in, empirically, at least in most places. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's very difficult to get the birth rate going up again once it has fallen. We saw that in other countries, and I think there's also a nice chart on that in the paper where one can compare the kind of fertility rates for several countries. And it's a clear tendency that once it has come down, it's not picking up again. Maybe a bit and some fluctuation, but it's not really on an upward trend. Again, so that means that mitigation measures are needed. I mean, there is a rapidly aging population. One can deploy some mitigation measures in order to have less of an impact on the labor market. One of it is extending work life. So one can raise the retirement age so that people work longer. If people live longer, it makes naturally sense to also see them working longer in order to have a more balanced work life versus retirement life in terms of proportions. And in particular, it is important in the case of China that people work longer than their mid-50s. At the moment, the actual average retirement age is in the mid-50s. So it's not only extending the legal retirement age, but also people actually working longer. So you can easily imagine if somebody already retires in the mid-50s, he or she is not affected by an increase in the legal retirement age. And in order to reach that, there are also some improvements in the health conditions of the workforce needed. So if you if you do more occupational health services and disease prevention, people can work longer. And then there is also an issue about increasing labor mobility. We talked about demographic aging. We talked about less people migrating from rural areas. But if you have fewer 
people into the workforce, the ones you have should be deployed most efficiently. For people that don't know, there's a household registration system called HUCO in the PRC, and this is linked to some of your social benefits. And uh, so you would loosen some of these restrictions of people then moving to other areas where they are needed more. And finally, last but not least, raising female workforce participation is also a measure. So this female workforce participation rate has fallen over the past years, and a possible measure includes strengthening equal employment opportunities, increasing maternity leave, and improving support for childcare, elderly care, and single mothers. So there are some aspect of social policies coming in as well. So the mitigation measures is kind of a, a broader approach that you use some adjustments in the legal retirement age. You work on the health conditions and health care. You raise the female workforce participation and you increase labor mobility. Uh, so with these kind of measures, you can mitigate the adverse impact of the demographic aging. Interesting. I mean, some of these sound pretty challenging, but others sound pretty realistic if policymakers sort of uh, put their heads together and really push through some changes. I guess the final piece of the puzzle that we haven't talked about yet is investment. What are your main recommendations to ensure that the future capital investment in China is allocated to maximize future growth? So the key question there is who should invest in what in an economy? And here we have two main directions that are important, the areas of investment and the credit allocation. So if we look at investment, we saw overall diminishing returns to capital over the past decade. And we already talked about kind of areas of investment. So we have real estate and infrastructure investment, and we have manufacturing investment. And we know that manufacturing investment is more efficient or yields higher returns to growth in terms of economic growth, so higher returns there. So that means manufacturing investment should be pursued further. And for the real estate and the infrastructure investment, uh, there must be a strategy in order to have them expand at a moderate pace. We already talked about kind of the debt of local governments and their increasingly challenges to finance more infrastructure financing. And then we talked about the housing market and the needs of population for more housing and most likely a natural moderation in the growth of the housing stock that then also, of course, would require an adjustment in investment in the housing market. So all things equal, just to interject here, all things equal, what you're saying is that if now we're going through a deceleration in housing and a, a bit of a structural change, but if if housing comes back in a big way, that's not necessarily good for long-term growth in China. If because there's so much infrastructure, if they focus on more and more infrastructure, also not necessarily good. So the key way to maximize efficiency would be something like manufacturing investment. Is that more or less um, your key conclusion? Yes, there? among the three kinds of investment. Of course, in infrastructure, one could differentiate uh, hard and soft infrastructure, hard infrastructure being like roads, airports or railways and soft infrastructure more like healthcare and education. But then it's also the, the question, how is this accounted for? So if you build a hospital and the hospital building, it's a kind of investment. But if you hire nurses and doctors in order to work there, that is not counted as investment as a consumption. There might be also a kind of natural shift in what you need and how you should balance actually investment and consumption in kind of accounting terms. So it's quite obvious that doesn't help to build like two or three hospitals if you don't have the doctor and nurses to run them. So that uh, is just an example. Yeah. 
So the capital allocation and what you mentioned, I think it's broadly correct. The other part is in manufacturing investment and investment in industry and also in the services sector, who should get credit in order to do something. We just discussed the areas of investment, but it's also important who should do the investment and what kind of preferences they have. And here we would recommend to shift away credit from SOEs more to the private sector and shift away bank credit from big companies to small and medium-sized and micro-businesses. There are reasons behind that because uh, we can see in that a lot of industrial SOEs, they are loss-making. They might have to exit the market in, in case there are reforms because it doesn't make sense to indefinitely sustain them with credit because credit needs to be deployed productively. And the other thing is that the small and medium enterprises, they have challenges to get bank credit because the bigger companies usually have better collaterals. But these small and medium-sized and micro-business, they're very important for employment, and they're also very important for services delivery, because a lot of them are in the services sector. You want to transition towards services, as we discussed before. So having more credit going towards them would facilitate that development. Great. Thank you very much for all of these insights and these important policy recommendations. And I encourage anyone who wants to dive into some of the details on this topic to download the paper from the Asian Development Bank website. Dominic, do you mind uh, telling us the entire name of the paper just in case uh, folks are having trouble finding it? No, sure. It's the, the long-term growth prospects of the People's Republic of China. Okay. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fitch Ratings does not provide policy advice. Any policy recommendations provided in the course of this podcast represent those of external parties.